Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Matthew 21 through 23, Mark 11, Luke 19 and 20, and John chapter 12. And so with this podcast, we're going to spend a lot of time in the first few days of this last week of the Savior's ministry. So today we're going to cover Sunday through Tuesday of his final week. Now, before we start, Bryce and I just want to acknowledge that there are some things that we're going to be covering in this podcast that will be covered in other lessons and Come Follow Me. There's essentially eight lessons that cover the last week of the Savior's life, and every one of these lessons, we will have the events listed in order, and this order is actually coming out of the Bible Dictionary. So we are doing our best to adhere to that chronological presentation of the last week of the Savior's life. Now, I understand what Come, Follow Me is doing. They're trying to organize that by chapter. We're going to do this chapter, and then that chapter, and then that chapter. It gets so difficult during this last week. So Mike and I are going to organize this by day. We will be very clear, we are on Sunday of his final week, or this is now Tuesday of his final week, and then we're going to list everything chronologically. So here's what we're going to do today. We are on our way to Jerusalem to start that last week. He's going to stop in Bethany at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus's house, where she will anoint him with spikenard. And then his triumphal entry will be on Sunday. He will enter Jerusalem triumphantly with the reception of a conquering king. He may also have cleansed the temple on Sunday. Other writers list that on Monday, but his triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple. On Monday, the only significant event that we have is the cursing of the fig tree. Tuesday morning, when they're on their way back to the temple to teach, they notice how quickly it has completely disintegrated. And then Tuesday, he will spend the day in the temple teaching and confronting the Pharisees. They will ask him four questions. He will teach three parables, and then he will ask them one piercing question, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? So we'll get into all of those teachings in the temple in this podcast. That's Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday of his final week. Now, just so you know, the scriptures have nothing on Wednesday. We don't know anything about his Wednesday. And then our next podcast, we'll pick it up on Thursday morning. And so with this podcast, we're going to spend a lot of time in the first few days of the last week of his ministry. And on the way to Jerusalem... We have in Luke 19 this account of Jesus passing through Jericho. Now, Jericho is way downhill from Jerusalem. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea, and Jerusalem's uphill elevation-wise. But in this narrative, we have Jesus passing through Jericho, and there's a chief publican that's going to have a communication with him in Jericho. Now, some people call his name Zacchaeus. I say Zacchaeus, so I hope that doesn't offend anyone who's stuck on Zacchaeus. But Zacchaeus, to me, is one of the great stories in the New Testament, and it haunts me. I will tell you right now, it haunts me. And I am constantly looking for the Zacchaeuses in my life because of this story. So as Jesus comes into Jericho, this man named Zacchaeus 
He has three strikes against him socially in their culture. Strike number one in verse two, he was chief among the publicans. So he's a tax collector. Now you, I think, know how the Jews felt about people who collected taxes for the Romans. They're the enemy. They're playing on the enemy's team, and you're one of us. He's going to be seen as a traitor. Now, he's very honest. He will tell Jesus that half my goods I give to the poor. If I take anything from any man by false accusation, I restore him full force. He's an honest man, but socially he's seen as the enemy because he, in essence, works for the Romans. Number two, he's very rich. Now, he's probably rich because he's been a wise investor and an honest man, but they're going to perceive that as he's taking extra. He's taking more than he should. He's cheating them so that he can get rich. So that's going to be perceived as strike number two. And I don't know that this is a strike, but verse three says he was little of stature. So socially, can you imagine where he was? Now, as you look around your life, I guarantee you have a whole bunch of Zacchaeuses that don't fit in They're the ones that eat lunch alone at high school and middle school, and no one talks to them. And sometimes it's because of their accent or their clothing or their history or something. And unfortunately, sometimes it's because of the color of their skin or perhaps their religion. Every one of us have Zacchaeuses in our life. Now notice, Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus, but they won't let him into the circle. He can't see Jesus, so he climbs a tree to see him. Now, verse 5, when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him. That's a commentary on the Savior. And unfortunately, that flies in the face of me. I am not looking for them sometimes. I need to. I am not looking up. I'm not noticing them. Jesus looked up and saw him. And then he said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must. There's the haunting word. I must abide at thy house. Why the word must? Why did he say, I must eat with you? Now, this is Bryce Dunford's commentary. If you see it differently, I welcome that. But here's how I see it. I believe that must is a rebuke to us. I think he was saying, I'm going to eat with you, not with the stake president, not with the general authorities, not in the temple. I'm going to eat with you, Zacchaeus, because they aren't, because they're ignoring you, because they don't see you. And every time I read that word must, it is a haunting rebuke of me saying, if Jesus were to visit my town, He might very well say, Bryce, I'd love to come eat dinner with you, but I can't. I got to go visit the people you have not visited. I have to go visit Zacchaeus. I must. I read that word as a rebuke that I have neglected the man in the tree because he talks funny or he acts differently or politically he's not where I am. And I've kept him out of the circle. And Jesus walks into town and says, I see you, Zacchaeus. I know the story. My sweet, wonderful wife, who I love with all my soul, transferred from a very small school to a very large school her senior year. 
and she was Zacchaeus. She was lost. She ate alone. She went over to the seminary building and ate her lunch alone because no one saw her. No one noticed her. Do you know how much that haunts me? I was not far away. And if I had known, I would have run. And so before we get into the Savior's last week, may we pause and search our lives for the Zacchaeuses who've climbed a tree so they can see Jesus. I know if he were to come to my neighborhood, he would like to visit with me. I know he would like to eat dinner at my house, but I am positive he would say, I can't, Bryce, because I must go visit the people you have not visited, you have missed. Don't miss them. See them and run to them. So the very next thing in Luke chapter 19 is the parable of the pounds, which is so closely related to the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 24 that we're going to skip it in Luke. We'll, we'll cover that in Matthew chapter 24. So there's one more stop on the way to Jerusalem. Before he enters the city triumphantly, he stops at Bethany at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Now, when we read this account of the anointing, we read that it's in the home of Simon the leper and Matthew. And in John 12, we read that the woman who is anointing him is Mary. Now, she's unnamed in the other accounts. If you read Matthew and you read Mark, we don't know her name. But she's named in John 12 as Mary. And it says that she takes a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Now, the purpose is questioned in John as well. And the question is, okay, why are we doing this? This is a very expensive ointment, 300 pence or denarius, 300 days wages. This is a lot of value. And Jesus says in John chapter 12, verse 7, let her alone against the day of my bearing hath she kept this. And we read this in the other accounts as well, that he's being anointed for his burial. Now, I want to just throw some possibilities out here as to why this is in here. I think what we have is that she is recognizing him as a king, and he is being anointed as a king, at least symbolically. I know the text doesn't say this. The text says that he's being anointed for his burial, but kings were anointed. He is also the Christ or Christos. He is the anointed one. So the fact that she anoints his feet could be significant. You see, in ancient Israel, the feet of the king were considered a symbol of authority and power, as well as humility. By anointing his feet, Mary may have been acknowledging the dual nature of Christ as a powerful king and also as a humble servant who came to earth to save humanity. In other words, he's being anointed for his death, that's his mortal nature, but he is also being anointed as a king. And so in this dual role as a human, but also as a king, and I would add as a god, this anointing can be seen both for his burial and for his kingship. It's clearly a prophetic sign of his true identity as the promised Messiah. Now, we're going to see this in the context of the last week. He's going to mention this several times. Jesus is going to say that the temple is going to be destroyed. An interesting connection for me as a total Old Testament nerd is this. If you go to Leviticus 14, there's this script on what you're supposed to do if a house is filled with leprosy. And the first couple times you go in there and you cleanse it out and you warn the people and say, hey, this has leprosy and you cleanse it. 
But if it keeps coming, if leprosy in the house will not leave, every stone in the house has to be dismantled and the entire house is taken apart. So what if the author of Matthew, it's only in Matthew that we read that the kingly anointing is in a leper's house. What if Matthew, who is a Jew, who knows the Jewish scriptures backwards and forwards, what if this is an ironic dig at the priestly establishment? You see, the kings were anointed at the temple. We have the king of the cosmos anointed in a leper's house, and the temple, I think, this is the way I read Matthew, I think Matthew is saying the temple is leprous. Jesus cleanses it. Now, what's ironic is he's cleansing it in the synoptics, at the end of his ministry, but in John, he's cleansing it at the beginning. So if you combine the synoptics with John, we have two cleansings, which kind of fits in my head with the cleansings that are listed in Leviticus 14. In other words, you cleanse the house, you do it again, and then if they if the leprosy just keeps coming, the house has got to go. So I really like this as kind of a reversal, as it were. The king of the cosmos is anointed as a king in the house of a leper. If you're interested in some of the details about the ointment, we put that stuff in the show notes. We're not going to get into those weeds here in this podcast, but we put some of that in there for you. Let me give you an application of the story that you may pause and think about this week. So Mary has a pound of spikenard ointment worth 300 days wage. This is pretty much a year's salary. And she puts it on Jesus. Now, I've pondered the scene a lot, and I wondered, to whom was she speaking? I think she was speaking to Jesus. I think she was saying to him, this is what you're worth to me, and more. I would spend a year's wage on ointment just to put on your feet. That's what you mean to me. I think she was speaking to the other apostles, the other people that were with him. But I wonder if over in the corner she had a child. I know there's no mention of a child for Mary, but just imagine if she had a child. As I've put myself in this situation, I can picture my 10 children sitting on the side, and they watch their father take a year's salary, buy ointment, and anoint him with it. This is what I call my spikenard moment. It is the moment I tell my children what he means to me. There was no mistaking what he meant to Mary. So what are your spikenard moments? What are the moments in which you tell your children what Jesus means to you? How do they know? Maybe our spikenard moments are consistently attending the temple. I remember how annoyed I was with my parents as a child for getting babysitters constantly so they could go to the temple. But I remember how important going to the temple was to my parents. That was a spikenard moment. I really like that as an illustration of how do I show the Savior that he means something, but also what about my family? There's something about those kind of spikenard moments in our lives where we look back in our life and we realize that time we spent with our spouse, maybe we took them on a vacation that was one of those rare moments where... We just bonded, we connected. I think those moments do matter. 
And if every day is a spikenard moment, then no, no day is. So clearly you got to pick your spots. But at least for me, is a lot of times it's experiences and not necessarily buying things. Yeah. It's not really the purchase of the ointment. It's that overt act of letting someone know what Jesus means to me. Or what they mean to me. Like or what if I, they mean. Right? That's a good point, Mike. Yeah. Okay, before we do the triumphal entry, we just want to reference this. In John 12, 9 through 11, we read about the enemies of Jesus that are consulting to put Jesus out or to take Jesus out. In verse 9, it says, Much of the people of the Jews therefore knew that he was there, and they came not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might see Lazarus also, whom he had raised from the dead. But the chief priests consulted that they might put Lazarus also to death, because that by reason of him, many of the Jews went away and believed on Jesus. So these verses, there's just a few of them there in John 12, but what we see is the word is out. Jesus is headed up to Passover, and as he's going, Lazarus is raised from the dead, and his life, his existence is being spread. And people realize here is a sign that we can't refute, and there are some individuals that are upset. They don't want Jesus to be made known, and they don't want him to come up to the temple. Part of their fear is at least the rulers that that rule religiously in Jerusalem, they don't want a tumult made in the sense that they don't want to lose their control or their power. You see Jesus coming up to the temple, if people are going to call him Messiah, and that gets to be a loud message, Rome is not going to like that. And so Rome is going to cause problems and perhaps even take some of these Jewish leaders out or kill a bunch of Jews, and that's going to be a problem. And so the religious leaders in Jerusalem understanding that there's a lot of people coming to Jerusalem for Passover. They want the crowds there. They want them to bring their money and their taxes and to stay and spend some time, but they want it to be peaceful, and they certainly don't want any talk about a Messiah, because to them, that disrupts the money, the flowing of money that comes into the temple annually, and they want that money to keep coming in. And so there's this interesting relationship between the Roman government and the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And they kind of have this unwritten agreement that they're going to take care of each other. Rome says to the leaders, don't let any of these people with any fancy ideas of Messiah come in here and and stir up trouble. And that's what Rome wants. They want to kind of keep the status quo. And the Jews, at least the leaders of the Jews, say to Rome, if you give us control of the purse strings here at the temple treasury and you let us have our power, we'll do our best to control the Jews. And so that's kind of the political tension that Jesus is walking into as we go into what is commonly called the triumphal entry. And we're going to read from Matthew's account how he describes it in Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. This is a great moment. This is Jesus coming to Jerusalem to his house. A conquering hero is coming home. The way they respond is as if a great king were returning from battle victorious. And they wave the palm branches and they lay their clothing down and they shout out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. And this is a great moment. And the Pharisees are very, very bothered by what they're saying, and they ask Jesus to rebuke his disciples. And he says in almost every account, if they were silent, the stones, the earth would cry out. This is a great moment. This is Jesus coming to Jerusalem, having conquered his pride, having conquered the natural man, and now he's ready to conquer death and sin. 
This moment is worth celebrating. And so I would invite you to ponder this week, what has he conquered? Death is ahead. Sin is ahead. But what has he conquered at the moment of the triumphal entry? He's conquered his own pride, and he's coming as a king. What's fascinating is one of the first things he's going to do is he's going to cleanse the temple. But you remember in John's account when he cleansed the temple, he said, my father's house. But in every account, he's now going to say, my house. That's the spirit here. Now, normally, can you imagine a returning king who's been victorious at war, who's freed the city from any threat outside, and they've conquered the enemies? On what animal would he probably ride? He certainly wouldn't be riding on a donkey. So the contrast here is fascinating. He's conquered his own pride. Yeah. As we read this text, just look at Matthew 21, verse 2. Go into the village over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And then skip down to verse 5. Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek, and sitting upon an ass, and a coal, the full of an ass. That can be kind of confusing. Why does Matthew put two animals and the other gospel writers put one? I really like this commentary by Kelly Ogden where he says, there was actually only one animal intended, and Jesus, of course, could only ride on one animal. The discrepancy in the number of animals is resolved by a simple correction that Joseph Smith made in the Joseph Smith translation, and that there was only one animal involved. And so it's kind of a lot for this podcast, but I wanted to just mention, we actually put quite a bit in the show notes for you. And so with that little bit of detail about two animals or one animal, Bryce is now going to talk about the crowds and the people and what's going on in this circumstance. Something very tragic happens this week, and we've seen it in John chapter 6. Do you remember when he fed the 5,000 and a large group followed him? And then he said, you're following me for the wrong reason. And then he taught the Sermon on the Bread of Life. And many of them said, this is a hard saying, and they walked no more with him. He wasn't doing the things that they wanted him to do, therefore they walked away. That's a theme of the New Testament. Well, watch it happen this last week. I want to point out how many people were cheering on his entrance into Jerusalem. Matthew 21 verse 8 says, a very great multitude. Verse 10 adds, all the city was moved, saying, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. Mark's account says, many spread their garments in the way. Luke's account in 19 verse 37 says, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen. And then we turn to John's account. During the triumphal entry, the Pharisees are really bothered that he's getting that level of reception, and they say amongst themselves, look at verse 19 of John chapter 12, the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, perceive ye how ye prevail nothing? Behold, the world is gone after him. So when he marches into Jerusalem, the whole city was moved. Now, here's my question. Where is that crowd 
on Friday morning? Where are the thousands crying out for him when the chief priests are yelling out, crucify him, crucify him? Where does this crowd go? Clearly, they dissipate. And we're left to wonder why. And may I suggest, I think they were wanting the same miracles he performed in Galilee. He had just raised Lazarus from the dead. He had fed thousands with a few loaves of fishes and some bread. And they were hoping he would come into Jerusalem and do all these mighty miracles. And during this last week, there is only one recorded miracle other than the miracle of miracles, and that is his conquering of death and sin. There is only one recorded miracle, and it's the cursing of the fig tree. Is it possible that the reason these crowds dissipate is because he didn't do the miracles that they thought he would do in Jerusalem, the ones he did in Galilee. And isn't that a commentary on the whole New Testament? What are you going to do if Jesus doesn't answer your prayers the way you want him to? What if he's not the Messiah you're expecting? Will you walk away? We're back to that piercing question. Will you also walk away if he comes into your life like he came into Jerusalem and doesn't do what you were hoping he would do? The contrast for me is stark. The number of people greeting him into the city and then the lack of that same group trying to help him in any way when the chief priests are trying to get him crucified. They're gone. The crowd is gone. The multitude is gone. In Matthew's account of chapter 23, we read this in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how oft I would have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto desolate. Jesus is just weeping for the city. He sees in the future when Titus and his siege machines will come into the city and lay waste to the city of Jerusalem and destroy the temple. And you can go to the western wall of the foundation wall of where the temple was today, and you can see these massive stones that the Romans cast down. And these stones are bigger than trucks. They're so huge. And they just cast them down and wrecked the temple. And today there's no temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus sitting here on this week before his crucifixion, is seeing this in the future with his prophetic eyes, and he's weeping for the destruction which is coming. Look how often that's a theme. Look at Mormon weeping for his people. Oh, ye fair ones, as he weeps over their loss. Joseph Smith, on the way to Carthage, paused at the temple and said, this is the loveliest place and the best people under heaven. Little do they know the trials that await them. It's just that lament of a prophet who loves his people. I think of Nephi at the end of his life, where he says, my tears wet my pillow at night. I want so very much to save this people, but they're turning away from Christ. And I just think that's the Savior's lament here, is he knows what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen to them eternally if they reject his truths. And so he just weeps over them. At the conclusion of that day, 
we read in Matthew 21, verse 17, that he left them and he went out of the city into Bethany and he lodged there. And so in the morning, he's going to come from Bethany into Jerusalem. And on the way into Jerusalem, he's going to see a fig tree. And we can read this account in Matthew 21 and Mark 11. I'm going to read from the account in Matthew chapter 21, verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, only leaves. And he said to it, let no fruit grow on thee henceforth forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. This experience has been interpreted in a variety of ways. But one common interpretation is that it serves as a symbolic representation of Israel's spiritual condition during the time of Jesus. You see, he sees the fig tree. It's supposed to have fruit. At least it appears to be, but it doesn't. Some suggest that the fig tree represents Israel, which was expected to bear spiritual fruit in its role as the light to the whole world, but it was failing in its job. So according to this interpretation, the cursing of the fig tree represents God's judgment on Israel for Israel's failure to bear fruit. And so this theme is echoed in other passages of the New Testament where Jesus warns Israel that if they reject him as their Messiah, that it will lead to their destruction. The withering of the fig tree, therefore, can be seen as a foreshadowing of not only the destruction of the temple, but of the scattering of the Jews after 70 AD. And another way to read this is that the Lord is going to take the gospel to a group of people that will accept Jesus. That's one way to read this story. In other words, the tree could represent the house of Israel. Now, for those of you that are fans of the Book of Mormon, that seems to be a theme where we have a tree that represents things more than a tree. The tree can be a symbol for a lot of things, and in this sense, it can represent a family. So think about that as he goes into Jerusalem. Now, according to Mark's account, he curses the fig tree going into the city on Monday. And it doesn't mention that it withers. It just says he cursed the fig tree. And we really don't have anything else that happens on Monday. So Tuesday morning, as he's going back into the city, according to Mark's account, verse 21 of Mark 11, in the morning, now this is the next morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. And Peter, remembering what he said the other day, has a comment about it. So on the way to the temple Tuesday morning, it's very important that you remember that because of what he's going to talk about in the temple. He's going to give the parable of the Lord who rents out his property to the householders. And that's very symbolic of this fig leaf, that because I expected fruit and all I got was leaves, I got show and not substance. That fig tree is going to die and it's going to be given to another. Now, this is where you and I need to perk up our ears because Jesus is basically saying, your day is over, and now the Gentiles get the gospel. This tree is going to die, and I'm going to give it to someone else. There's almost a transition here. Now, I know Peter's going to lead the church for a while, but today is the day of the Gentiles. We're going to read that when we get to that parable, but I think this fig tree is so symbolic it represents that their time with the gospel has come to an end. 
and now he's passing it on to another group. And I say to all of you listening, we cannot let the same thing happen. We must be successful with the gospel. This is what's now our watch, and we're not going to let that tree die on our watch. Now, before we get into his teachings in the temple, at some point, either Sunday, Monday, maybe even Tuesday, at some point in that, Jesus cleansed the temple of all the money changers. Was it Sunday? Was it Monday? Could it possibly have been Tuesday before he taught? This is where the gospel writers are a little confusing, and they flip it, and some people have it on one day, and some have it on another. So we acknowledge that Jesus did go in and cleanse the temple. And like I mentioned earlier, he said, my house this time, instead of my father's house. My OCD brain just can't get away from this. So I just want to acknowledge in Mark 11, 12 through 14, he curses the fig tree. But then after that, in Mark 11, 15 through 19, he goes in and overthrows the money changers. So first fig tree, then the temple cleansing. But in the Matthew narrative, it's flipped. So after the fig tree, Jesus is going to enter into the temple precinct in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. Now, just as a summary, this is going to be a little out of order, but Jesus is going to answer four of their questions. The first one is, by what authority do you do this and who gave you this authority? The second one is, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar? The third one is about the woman who was married to seven brothers, and then the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, are going to say, in the resurrection, whose wife shall she be? And then the fourth one comes from the scribes, or kind of the lawyers, who say, what is the great commandment in the law? So he's going to answer those four questions. And then he's going to give three parables. Parable number one is the parable of the two sons. One says, I won't go, and then does, and one says, I'll go, and then doesn't. Parable number two is the great parable of the householders. The Lord of the vineyards rents out his property to householders who destroy his servants that he sends to collect the fruit. The third parable is going to be the king who made a marriage feast for his son. And then someone shows up without a wedding garment. And then Jesus is going to ask one question of his own, and that is, what think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? So however it comes up in the text, we're going to talk about those four questions that he was asked, the three parables he taught, and the one question he asked them. So we're going to mostly follow Matthew's account, and Matthew starts with question number one to Jesus. And all the synoptic writers are going to include this question. And it comes after he had cleansed the temple, probably not on the same day, but at some point they say to him, by what authority doest thou these things? And who gave thee this authority? Notice the rebuke isn't you're doing things you shouldn't do. You shouldn't be cleansing the temple. The rebuke is, well, who are you to cleanse the temple? We're the ones that should be cleansing the temple. This is where the Savior's going to start to turn things and silence them. I don't think he's speaking to the Pharisees. I don't think he has any hope of converting the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. I don't think he's any longer trying to change them, but it's the people in the temple. Remember, this is Passover time, and the temple would be filled with onlookers, and they're watching the exchange between Jesus and the authorities that be. And he's going to use that opportunity to help them understand that these people, the Pharisees, have no authority, and he does. 
And so they ask him, by what authority doest thou these things? And this is where Jesus turns it right around and says, I also have a question for you, and if you tell me the answer to my question, I will gladly answer your question. But if you won't answer my question, I won't answer yours. And his question is simply, the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And then they consult among themselves, and they say, we can't answer. If we say from heaven, Jesus is going to say, then why did you not believe John? John testified of me. If the baptism of John was of heaven, you should be following me. But if we say that it's of men, we fear the people, for all hold John as a prophet. Do you see their dilemma? And Jesus knew exactly he would put them in that dilemma, So they turn around and say, we cannot tell. And then the Savior says, neither tell I you by what authority I do these things. He just silenced them. Checkmate. Every time they try and throw him a curveball, he knocks it out of the park. So there's question number one. Now, allow us to maybe jump around. I think it might be better to show you the four questions they ask him because they're trying to trick him. This is the exact same thing Zezra tried to do with Amulek and Alma back in Alma chapter 11, where he asks a series of questions simply to trap him and watch him just knock it out of the park every single time. So let's jump to question number two. I'm going to use Mark's account because it says that the Pharisees are going to use the Herodians. Now, Mike's going to tell us exactly who they are and why that's significant. So let me just set this up for him. The Pharisees grabbed the Herodians to catch him in his words. That's what they're trying to do. They're going to have the Herodians ask him. Now, first, they're going to butter him up completely by saying, Master, we know that thou art true and carest for no man. For thou regardest not the person of man, but teachest the way of God in truth. And then they ask this question. Is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, they think they've got him trapped. The Herodians are asking, should we pay the taxes we owe to the Romans or should we not? The whole question is really a setup. And part of it is, we need to understand who the Herodians are. You see, the Herodians were a political group in Judea during the time of Jesus, and they were supporters of the Herodian dynasty, which ruled over Judea under Roman occupation. So the Herodians supported Herod and his family, and we kind of talked about the complexities of that and how his children had like pieces of the kingdom or tetrarchs, as it were, little pieces of the kingdom, but they were all subservient to Rome. And so in Matthew 22, 15 through 22, we read that the Pharisees are mentioned as the ones who are posing the question to Jesus about paying taxes to Caesar. But in Mark 12 and in Luke 20, we read that the Herodians are the ones that are present with the Pharisees, and they're asking Jesus the question. It's possible that the Pharisees and the Herodians are joining forces and asking Jesus this question, even though they have different political views, they're coming together in order to trap him or discredit him. You see, the Pharisees hope to undermine Jesus's religious authority, but the Herodians are hoping to make Jesus look like a zealot or like a marauder, someone that's trying to overthrow Rome. 
And so Jesus's response to their question is pretty clever because it's going to show that he can actually outmaneuver them. So his answer where he says, render unto Caesar that which is Caesar's and unto God that which is God's, he's doing a couple of things, depending on how you read that statement. He's acknowledging the authority of the Roman government while also affirming the authority of God. That's on the basic level. And I just want to say, I think that's a really good reading of the text. So they say, is it lawful to give tribute to Caesar or not? And then Jesus says, why tempt ye me, ye hypocrites? Show me the tribute money. So they bring it to him. And he says, and I'm just reading from Matthew 22, where he says, you know, whose image is this? And they say, well, it's Caesar's. This is verse 21. And he says, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. And so I like that. He's kind of acknowledging both government authority and God's authority. But then there's another way you can read this. So first of all, let me just say this. They're presenting him with what I like to call from my Star Trek days, a Kobayashi Maru. Now, if you're not a Star Trek nerd, let me just tell you, the Kobayashi Maru is the ultimate test. If you wanted to be a captain in the Star Trek universe, right, the Kobayashi Maru is a situation where you cannot win. And that literally is their question. They come to Jesus with a question that there's no way you can win, and yet Jesus pulls off the ultimate answer, where he basically acknowledges both authorities. So here's the thing. If you read what he's saying to them in the Greek, I know, I'm a weirdo, but go to Matthew 22, verse 21. He says, apodote, it's give back is probably the best way I can say it. He's saying, give back to Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things which are God's. The reason why I like that different reading is because this is a second level awesome answer that Jesus gives. What if he's holding the coin and saying, give this coin back to Caesar and give the land, which is God's, back to God's people? That answer would satisfy every Jew in the room, but he's not saying that. He's a code switcher. Jesus is awesome with the way he's speaking. So if anybody quotes him, if anybody goes to Caesar and say, Jesus just said, this really bad thing about you. And then Caesar says, well, what did he say? And they say, well, he said, render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and and render unto God the things which are God's. He would say, oh, that's no big deal. But on another level, Jesus could literally be saying, give the coin back to Caesar. That's got his image on it. But you are God's people with God's image in you. And this is God's land. So I really like that. I know that that's not the common way. We don't normally teach that in church. It's not in a lot of our manuals. If you're interested, go to the show notes. We put some really good commentary in here from Riza Aslan. Now, I don't agree with a lot of Riza Aslan's conclusions. I don't necessarily like his conclusions, but his stuff on this statement is pretty good stuff. Either way you read it, like Jesus is a code switcher and he answers an impossible question. And this is just kind of indicative of what he's going to do this week. So do you think he can do it again? First, the Pharisees come at him with the Herodians. Now the Sadducees, who don't believe in a resurrection, are going to use their own doctrine to trip him up and kind of prove that this is so messy and so complicated. So the Sadducees come and say, all right, Moses said, according to the law, that if a man and woman were married and they don't have children and the man dies, there was allowance in the law of Moses that one of the brothers— would step up and raise up seed to his brother. 
so that she would have a family. So the question here is, a man died having no children. His brother married his wife and didn't have children, and then he died. In fact, seven brothers all die, and she's married to every single one of them. And then the question, ready? Here's question number three. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her. Now, they're trying to play on the messiness of this resurrection, that all of them come back, all of them were married to her. Now, whose wife is she? So Jesus is going to answer that question at two very significant levels. Now, let us separate them. Level number one, whose wife is she? Let's deal with that. And then he's going to talk about him being the God of the living and not the God of the dead. But point number one, and this has been used against the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Many people will quote these verses to say there's no eternal marriage. But I would invite you to read the text carefully. And first of all, that was not the Savior's intent. This is not the time and the place to be teaching eternal marriage in the temple to a group of Sadducees who don't even believe in the resurrection. But even in his words, I'm going to use Mark's words because I think they're the clearest. I believe we're in complete harmony with what he said when he said, when they shall rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. It does not say when they rise from the dead, they are no longer married. But there are some other ways to look at that and some other quotations from the brethren. Joseph F. Smith taught, they did not understand the principle of sealing for time and for all eternity, that what God has joined together, neither man nor death can put asunder, Matthew 19.6. They had wandered from that principle. It had fallen into disuse among them. They had ceased to understand it, and consequently, they did not comprehend the truth. But Christ did. She could only be the wife in eternity of the man to whom she was united by the power of God for eternity as well as for time. And Christ understood the principle, but he did not cast his pearls before the swine that tempted him. Now, the last part of President Smith's quote, I just want to comment about that. I think the whole context of this entire interchange has nothing to do with marriage. I think that the questioners are using a woman who's been married to seven men to set up a ridiculous circumstance, a very rare circumstance, to use it to disprove the belief in the resurrection. They're trying to undermine the belief in the resurrection. And a lot of people don't think this way because we live in a world today where Christians have the Bible. We have the New Testament, the Old Testament. We kind of read it as it's like this one monolithic faith. But as I've studied the Old Testament, I've come to the conclusion that, first of all, that it's been edited. Secondly, that there's very little evidence in the Old Testament as we now have it that explicitly discusses resurrection. You've got a little bit in Daniel. You have these oblique references in Genesis where the patriarchs want to be buried next to each other. And I remember Robert J. Matthews one time saying, why do they want to be buried by each other if there's no resurrection? It's just kind of an oblique reference, but you kind of have to connect the dots. But other than Daniel and a few passages in Isaiah, and then depending on how you read Ezekiel 37, and the, trust me, the Jews, many of them, look at Ezekiel 37 as not a resurrection passage. A lot of Old Testament scholars say that the conservative position in Jesus's day was to not believe in the resurrection. So the Sadducees actually represented the conservative position, and the Pharisees were more, shall we say, liberal in their views. Now, 
We don't think like this. We pretty much take it for granted that, duh, there's the resurrection. And then we have the Book of Mormon where we have Alma talking about it and Nephi talking about it. And there were these apocalyptic prophets that talked about a resurrection. And there's a bunch of literature outside of the Bible in these texts called Hecalot literature or ascent literature where they talk about the Son of Man is the prince of life of the resurrection. And the New Testament authors have read this stuff. They've read Enoch. They've read the Apocalypse of Abraham. They've read some of these documents that talk about an ascent and about resurrection. And Jesus is an apocalyptic prophet. What I mean by that is he is speaking like these apocalyptic prophets of his day. Many of their records are not in the Bible. What do apocalyptic prophets talk about? They talk about ascent. They talk about visions. They talk about resurrection, duality, light versus darkness. They talk about the end times, what uh, scholars often call eschatology, this idea of end times where everything will be wrapped up and the good guys are going to win otherwise known as the book of Revelation. That is a book which is an apocalyptic book. In fact, the name itself is the apocalypse. Like It's this uncovering. And so Jesus is that kind of prophet. He's uncovering mysteries. He's entered into the mysteries. And so Jesus is talking to people, and they're using what I would call dodo head logic to try to undo the idea of a resurrection. And so Jesus is like, listen, You don't understand the scriptures. We're going to read this right out of Mark chapter 12, verse 26. Jesus says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now it's posed in a question here. And then Jesus is going to say, he is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. And then he basically says, you guys are being really, really dense. You're being really obtuse. In essence, they're just not even ready to hear any higher truth. He's not going to get into eternal marriage with these guys because he's just trying to basically say, listen, there's a resurrection. And my proof of this is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the God of the living. I think he's also saying, oh, by the way, those guys are alive. So if you go back to Matthew 22, verse 32, and I think this is significant. He says, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the multitude heard this, they were astonished at his doctrine. Now, I just want to make this distinction. It wasn't necessarily blasphemy to say that you're the Messiah, but... It would be blasphemy to those that don't believe it if you're to say, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are Jews that are hearing this that are going to say, okay, you've crossed the line. This is blasphemy. Now, from my perspective, as a believer in Jesus, I read verse 32 and I'm like, thank you. Thank you for saying it and for saying it very plain. Because to the audience at the temple on that day during Passover week, that's who he is. And that's very plain. That's a really big deal. Now, that's question three. After this, they're getting nervous. Jesus is knocking it out of the park with every one of their questions. Look at verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Now, they have one more question. Let's see what he does by pitting the commandments against themselves. The idea of having a most important commandment, I think they thought was a trip up. If we can get him to say that that one commandment is more important than all the other commandments, then he's going to look foolish. And so they have one last question for him. Now, in Mark's account, they had one of the scribes, kind of a lawyer legal mind, who's going to basically say which amendment to the Constitution is most important. And right now, that could be a very hot topic. Is it equal protection under the law or is it freedom of religion? 
And you see, if, if someone today were to say, well, freedom of religion is more important than equal protection under law, boy, you alienate a whole group of people. If you were to say equal protection under the law is more important than religious freedom, boy, you alienate another. And that's exactly what they're hoping to do is to alienate Jesus by having him pick a side. And so this scribe comes forward and asks the question, which is the first commandment of all? Now, in Matthew's account, it's which is the greatest. So combining them into kind of the spirit in which I think it was asked, which commandment is the first and greatest of all the commandments? Now, because you know exactly what he said, this isn't going to strike you as an incredible answer, but this is an incredible answer. The way he answers this is absolutely brilliant, and that is, there is a great and first commandment. There's also a great and second commandment. Jesus answers, again, I'm in Mark, the first, now Matthew would add the greatest, the first and greatest of all the commandments is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Now he's pulling back to Deuteronomy, he's pulling back from the scriptures that they would have loved and they would have cherished. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. This is the first commandment. And the second is like, namely this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. There is none other commandment greater than these. That is absolute brilliant approach to what they're trying to do to him, and yet it is phenomenal doctrine. All of the commandments fit under two headings. They are either under the heading of loving God, or they are under the heading of loving my neighbor. Very related. The direction he gives in this setting is brilliant, and he sets up what has now become a common Christian symbol. I want you to picture a line, a vertical line between me and heaven. There is the love I have for God. Now picture a horizontal line between me and my neighbor. That is my love for my neighbor. When you combine those two lines, you have the blessed cross of Christianity, the symbol of Jesus in so many religions. And he just brilliantly boiled down my life to two simple requests, love God and love your neighbor. So those are the four questions they pose, trying to trap him every single time. And every single time, he not only answers it in such a way that they couldn't trap him, but edifies all of us. So now let's turn our attention to the three parables he taught. Now for this, we're mostly going to follow Matthew's account. So let's start in Matthew chapter 21, verse 28, the parable of the two sons. This is a beautiful rebuke to them and a thought-provoking question for all of us. He says, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons and came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. And he said unto him, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. He came to the second and said likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, but went not. Whither of them twain did the will of his father? Is it better to say you'll go 
but then not, or to say you won't go, but then go. I always say it's better to say you'll do it and then do it, but that's never the option here. Yeah. But that's what I always like to, do, to get into is just say, just do it. But I think in this story, his answer is going to be whoever does the will. Yeah. Is it better to be nice in front of your dad and say that you will, but not actually do it? Or is it better to be honest and say, I'm not going to go and kind of hurt your dad's feelings, but then actually go out and do it? Who is the better son here? Who's the one that's doing his will? And they knew, it's obvious, they knew the answer, and he knew they knew the answer. So they say the first. Jesus then says, verily I say unto you that publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you, because they're likely to change and repent. They're the ones that initially said no, but then go. The Pharisees are the ones who are putting on a show but aren't doing the works. I like that. The next parable I often call the parable of the wicked husbandman. And this is in Matthew 21, 33 through 46, or Mark 12, 1 through 12, or Luke 29 through 19. I'm going to read it right out of Matthew. So we're in Matthew 21, starting in verse 33. Now, Mike, there's a Joseph Smith change that you need to read as you read the beginning. So let me throw this in, and then, Mike, you pick it up. Instead of reading verse 33, hear another parable, Jesus, according to Joseph Smith, says, and again, hear another parable, for unto you that believe not, I speak in parables, that your unrighteousness may be rewarded unto you. He's deliberately pointing out, I'm telling this parable to those of you who don't believe. So be prepared to understand what your lack of belief is going to do. That's the setting here. So then we read in Matthew 21, 33, there was a certain householder which planted a vineyard and hedged it round about and digged a wine press in it and built a tower and let it out to husbandmen and went into a far country. And when the time of the fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the husbandmen that they might receive the fruits of it. And the husbandman took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. And again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did unto them likewise. But last of all, he sent unto them his son, saying, They will reverence my son. But when the husbandmen saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and let us seize on his inheritance. And they caught him, and they cast him out of the vineyard, and they slew him. When the Lord thereof the vineyard cometh, what do you think he'll do to those husbandmen? The response is this. They will say unto him, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render unto him the fruits in their season. Jesus saith unto them, did you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now listen, you Latter-day Saints, listen very carefully to the next verse. Therefore I say unto you, the kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder." Now, let me continue in the JST edition. Now, listen carefully, you Latter-day Saints. When the chief priests and Pharisees had heard this parable, they perceived that he spake of them. I'm sorry, but duh. 
And they said among themselves, Shall this man think that he alone can spoil this great kingdom? And they were angry with him. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude, because they learned that the multitude took him for a prophet. Now his disciples came to him, and Jesus said unto them, Marvel ye at the words of the parable which I spake unto them? Verily I say unto you, I am the stone, and those wicked ones reject me. I am the head of the corner. These Jews shall fall upon me and shall be broken, and the kingdom of God shall be taken from them and shall be given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof, meaning the Gentiles. Therefore, on whosoever this stone shall fall, it shall grind him to powder. And when the Lord thereof of the vineyard shall come, he will destroy those miserable wicked men and will let again his vineyard unto other husbandmen, even in the last days, who shall render him the fruits in their seasons. Do you know who he's talking about? Do you understand exactly what he was telling them? I have a group of people. I have reserved them in pre-mortal life until the latter days, and I am giving them the kingdom, and they won't lose it. They will render the fruits in their seasons. You know, Bryce, in the context of Matthew 21 and the time period it was written, I also see people like Paul reading Matthew 21 and seeing this as okay, this is the time of the Gentiles. Paul is in this perfect position to go take the gospel to all these Greeks that aren't necessarily all Jews. Now, granted, there's Jews scattered throughout the empire, and they're the first ones. They're the nucleus of the first century of early Christianity. But then over time, others, commonly called pagans or the people that believe in the religions of their ancestors that are out in the world, right? These other individuals that are not Christian come unto Christ, and they become grafted in. And so we read this in Matthew 21, verse 41, where he says, he will miserably destroy those wicked men and will let out his vineyard unto other husbandmen, which shall render him fruits in their seasons. And so in the context of early Christianity, that would be the Gentiles. Now today, yeah, it's the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints has that responsibility today to render fruit. But what if it's also a message to us, especially those of us in the West, as we see faith declining in the West and so so many more people swimming in secularism and losing faith? What if that's a message to us as well, where the Lord is saying, if you won't render fruit, I'll find someone who will. Let me give you an equivalent in the Doctrine and Covenants when the Lord commanded them to build the Nauvoo Temple. In Doctrine and Covenants 124, verse 31, he says, I command you, all ye my saints, to build a house unto me, and I grant you a sufficient time to build a house unto me, and during this time your baptism shall be acceptable unto me. They were doing them in the river. But behold, he says in verse 32, at the end of this appointment, your baptisms for your dead shall not be acceptable unto me. And if you do not these things at the end of your appointment, ye shall be rejected as a church with your dead, saith the Lord your God. I'm moving on with another people if you're not the people that are going to do this work. 
Now, we can't let it go. We can't let someone else come in and do the work we were appointed to do. This parable of the husbandman is a call to arms. It is a plea to say, don't let this happen again. The Latter-day Saints cannot let this happen again. But if we do not rise up and render the fruit in its season, he'll find another people who will. By the way, Bryce, that statement reminds me of what Brigham Young said to the saints in Nauvoo in August. After Joseph Smith had been killed in June of 1844, the 12 come back to Nauvoo, and Brigham Young gives a speech to the saints where he essentially says, I'm the president of the Quorum of the Twelve, and the Quorum of the Twelve, we are going to lead the saints west. And you can come with us or not, but if you choose not to, the Lord will raise up a people who will. He will raise up a people who will follow the Twelve. And I think, what a bold statement to have heard Brigham Young say. And it's kind of that idea that Jesus is portraying here to these people. Remember, we're at the temple, and many of them are kind of sticking out their chests, and they're saying, we are God's people. And Jesus saying, I am the son of the householder. Will you reverence the son? And I think that question, will you reverence the son, is for all of us. We all have to make that decision. So after that parable, the second of three, we're going to go to the third parable, and it's in Matthew 22. And this is the parable of the wedding of the king's son. And this is only in Matthew. Now, my favorite part of this whole parable is the stuff in here about the wedding garment. So I'm going to talk a little bit about about that. But Bryce, why don't you start us off and kind of talk about what's going on here in Matthew 22, and why is the parable of the marriage of the king's son so significant? This now becomes a major theme for us Latter-day Saints, that the second coming is a wedding feast. It's a great and glorious day for those who are waiting for him. And so parables like the ten virgins come into focus. The book of Revelation will talk about his coming as a wedding. His bride hath made herself ready. That image that Jesus is married to the church and the church is his bride. And that's the wedding of the son. So we live in the day where all people are being invited to come to the wedding feast. We call it the second coming. But the second coming will begin with a feast. And so the idea here is the king made a marriage for his son, the king being heavenly father and the son being Christ, and sent forth servants to call them that were bidden, come to the wedding feast, and they would not come. The people that were expected were not there. So he sent another servant saying, tell them which are bidden, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatling are killed. All things are ready. Come unto the marriage. But they made light of it and they went their ways. That's exactly what Jesus is saying the Jews were doing. And unfortunately, that's exactly what so many in the world today are doing. They are making light of the invitation to the wedding feast. So verse 6, the remnant took his servants and entreated them spitefully and slew them. When the king heard thereof, he was wroth, and he sent forth his army and destroyed those murderers and burned up their cities. The wedding is ready, but they which are bidden were not worthy. Go ye therefore into the highways, and as many as ye shall find, bid to the marriage. 
And that's exactly what we're doing. We're going to every country, every place on earth, and we will find those who will come to the wedding feast. And then verse 10, so those servants went out into the highways and gathered together all as many as they found, both bad and good, and the wedding was furnished with guests. Now, some of those guests have come and are not quite prepared. Now, what Mike's about to talk about is a commentary on those who have come to the wedding. And all of us are trying. I am desperately trying to prepare myself and my family to come to the wedding. So what is it that I need to take to the wedding to stay there, to feel comfortable there, to be a proper guest at that wedding feast? What is it that I need? And what then becomes the work of the Latter-day Saints? Not just inviting them to the feast, but helping them have the right attire for the feast. So we do more than just missionary work. It's not a matter of just baptizing them. It's baptize the world and then prepare them for the feast. Otherwise, what happens, Mike? Well, what happens? The king comes in. He sees the guests in verse 11, and he saw that there was a man which didn't have on a wedding garment. And he said unto him, Friend, how camest thou in hither not having a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, and take him away, and cast him into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called, but few are chosen. There's lots of ways to read this parable. I think on the first level, this could be described as a parable that explains the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus. So some people interpret this as an allegory for the Jewish people's rejection of Jesus as the Messiah and the Savior of the world. And so in this view, the king represents God, the son represents Christ, Jesus Christ, and the invited guests represent the Jewish people who were called to receive the message of Jesus, but simply refused to accept him. And so they eventually had him crucified, at least the leaders did. Another way this can be read as an offer of salvation to all, regardless of social status or their religious background, whether they're Israelites or not. I kind of read this as the invitation to the Gentiles later that we'll talk about in the book of Acts. Um, This could be represented in the gathering of the people out from all the highways. Remember from Matthew 22, verse 10, we read, all as many as they found, both bad and good. And another interpretation of this parable discusses this clothing. In this view, the wedding garment represents the righteousness that is required to enter into the kingdom of God. Just as the man is without the wedding garment and he's thrown out, so too are those who are not clothed in righteousness. They will be excluded from the kingdom of God. My favorite part of this whole parable is the emphasis on being properly clothed. And if you think about this, if you're a Latter-day Saint, in LDS theology, temple garments are worn as a reminder of the covenants that we have made in the temple and as a symbol for our commitment to living a righteous life, to following Jesus. And so the parable of the wedding garment can be seen as a metaphor for the importance of being spiritually prepared and clothed in righteousness, which is symbolized in the garment. In other words, the garment can be seen as an outer expression of an inner commitment that I have to follow my Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I talked a little bit about this earlier in the podcast. In early 
what's called Hecalot literature or Ascension literature. There are all these texts outside of the Bible, but some inside the Bible that discuss this idea of an ascent. Um, Hecalot just comes from this idea of a hekal, which is the fancy way of saying the temple. And we're going to see this later when we get to the passage where Jesus says, in my father's house are many mansions. Polemone can be read as many mansions, I guess, but it can also be read as many rooms. And in the literature of the people that lived during this time, especially in their visionary experiences, the idea was this, that there was a temple on earth, but there was also a temple in heaven. And God was on the throne in the temple in heaven, and the temple in heaven was mimicked on the earth. There was an earthly temple, there was a heavenly temple, and both temples had a lot of rooms. And so when Jesus says, in my Father's house are many mansions, there's this idea that there's many rooms, and we kind of ascend from room to room until we come to the throne of God. Well, in this literature, this Jewish mystical literature that in scholarship today is called Hecalot literature, visionary mystics went through various levels to come into the presence of God. And a lot of the literature talks about heavens, ascending through heavens, as it were. Now, this is not really plainly expressed in the English King James, but in the Greek and the Hebrew, the word heaven is usually plural. Not always, but usually is plural. And so it's this idea that the visionary mystics would ascend through various levels of heaven to come into the presence of God. And along their ascent, they would be required to wear special clothing, specifically things like robes or crowns. And these robes or this garment that they would be given would represent their spiritual status, their change of status, to a higher state that helped them to navigate the heavenly realms as it's described. And so the parable of the wedding garment can be seen in a similar vein. It could be seen as a metaphor for the importance of being spiritually prepared and clothed in the appropriate attire for the visionary going on their ascent into God's presence. We read this in the Enoch literature where he's literally clothed in these holy robes and Enoch looks around and he sees the angels as he comes to, to what he's going to call the seventh level of heaven. And he looks around and he's approaching God on his throne. And he says, I saw the garments that the angels in heaven wore. And I realized I had one on too. And then he says, there was no observable difference. I love that statement. What does that mean? I mean, that stuff's not in here in Matthew, but here's my point. I think the listeners to Jesus when he's talking about this, those who have eyes to see know what he's talking about. And those that don't, it just kind of goes right over their head. But my take on this, this is like I said, this is just my reading. I think that's what Jesus is talking about. So I know this isn't a podcast on Joseph Smith, but I'm just going to say this. Joseph Smith, as I read what he's doing with the endowment, he's sitting in that tradition. He's trying to initiate in the temple an understanding of the saints that the endowment represents an ascent. And part of that we put on the wedding garment. And the wedding is a symbol for us coming back to God's presence, to coming together. And at the wedding, what do you do? You have a feast, and the church is the bride, and we have this big feast together to celebrate the union of the bride and the groom. And we practice it every Sunday. So the wedding imagery is all over the place. That's why I love that bit on the garment. Let me take you to Revelation chapter 19, when Jesus actually comes the second time in Revelation. It says in verse 7, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, 
and his wife hath made herself ready. Now, how did the church get ready? How did the bride get ready? Verse 8, to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. That's why it was so significant that the man didn't have on a wedding garment. He wasn't clothed in the righteousness of the saints, and he wasn't prepared to face Christ. Beautiful images, not just a rebuke for them because they were unclothed. They weren't wearing the garment, and therefore they're not going to be invited to stay at the wedding feast, but it's an invitation for all of us. Are we gathered to the feast? There's one thing, come to the feast. But are you wearing the right clothing? Are you going to stay at the feast? Do you have what you need to be a welcomed guest at the marriage of Christ in the church? Are you wearing a wedding garment? Now, that's the third parable. As a final kind of showdown with the Jews, Jesus has his own question. They've asked him four questions. He's taught by parable, and now he has a question. Now, this is Matthew's account. The very end of chapter 22, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And they yelled out, Christ, the expected Messiah that they were waiting for, is the son of David. And he responded and said, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? And he quotes the scriptures. If David call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word, neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions, because they know he's going to answer them to their own shame. But that question is one that every single person on this planet is going to have to answer. What think ye of Christ? So really, that is the question. But then if you're reading the King James and you're reading Matthew 22, you're probably thinking, I don't really understand what he's saying. So I'm just going to read the parts here. What think ye of Christ? That's Matthew 22, verse 42. Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. He said to them, how then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. This is where whenever I'm teaching a class, I can watch the eyes of my students and they kind of look at me like, all right, Brother Day, what's going on? Then Jesus continues, if David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. I really like this commentary from Baker and Ricks. They're essentially explaining this, and they say, hey, Jesus is quoting Psalm 110. So if you remember, in Psalm 110, the king would be anointed, and he would be sitting on the right hand of God. I'm just going to read Psalm 110 so we can kind of get our bearings to see what it is exactly that Jesus is quoting from. Psalm 110 reads as follows, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The way I see this is that the Lord, meaning the Lord in heaven, said unto my Lord, meaning the king, sit on my right hand. So the kings in ancient Israel were considered sitting on the right hand of God. They kind of represented God. And then skip down to verse four. The Lord has said and will not repent. Thou art a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So the king was a priest and a king after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord at thy right hand shall strike through the kings in the day of his wrath. In other words, the king was given a promise of invulnerability, and he was a son of God, and he was also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we don't have a lot of Old Testament kings acting like kings and priests. We have a little bit in the Old Testament with Solomon at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8. We have a little bit with David when he comes in with the ark, and he's doing the procession. But in general, we don't have kings acting as kings and priests. And yet, that was the tradition in first Israelite temple religion, that the king was a king and a priest. And what's interesting is when you read first Nephi, and you look at the top right there, it says that this is an account of Nephi's reign and his ministry. In other words, Nephi was a king and a priest because Nephi understood the temple. He tells you this in the very beginning of the Book of Mormon where he says, I've been initiated into the mysteries. I think that's in 1 Nephi 1 verse 1. Nephi knows the mysteries and he's a king and a priest. And so Jesus is channeling this stuff right out of Psalm 110 and he's explaining it. So he quotes Psalm 110 to support the argument that the Messiah is more than just a human king descended from David. He's also divine, and he's been appointed by God. Three times in the New Testament, this scripture, Psalm 110, is quoted to show that Jesus, who was a descendant of David, was also the Lord, meaning Jehovah, whom David worshiped. Two of these are in the Gospels. You can read this in Mark 12, 35 through 37, and Matthew 22, 24 through 46. Paul is also going to quote this when he talks about kingship and he relates it to the Savior, and it's found in the book of Hebrews chapter 1. By quoting Psalm 110, Jesus is inviting his hearers to ponder what was going on in these verses. In the first verse of Psalm 110, the words, sit thou at my right hand, was literally an invitation to the king in ancient Israel to sit next to God, implicitly to sit on the throne of God. This invitation here was offered in conjunction with the ordination to the Melchizedek priesthood, but it would not be realized until the conclusion of the temple drama when anciently the king would be crowned. And so in doing this, when the king was crowned, he would be symbolically sitting next to God. This is Psalm 110 verse 5 where we read, the Lord at thy right hand shall strike through kings in the day of his wrath. So here in Jesus's day, when Jesus is using this verse, we have Jesus asking the question, if David calls him, meaning me, Jesus, and he's pointing to himself, Yahweh here in the flesh, if David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And they can't answer him. The reason why they can't answer him is because they don't get it. But Latter-day Saints get it. Jesus is David's son due to the fact that he has come to earth as a mortal, born of Mary. He is a descendant of David, but he's also a son of God the Father. So he is both Lord 
and son in these passages, that he is literally the Lord that the kings of ancient Israel symbolically sat next to during their enthronement ceremonies long ago, but he is also God. So David could call him Lord, but he is also David's son. It's complicated, especially since the Jews that he's talking to don't acknowledge his divine sonship, but they don't know what to do with him. They know that he's doing miracles, but they're not connecting the dots. And Jesus is just laying out their own scriptures, and they're not getting it. But here's the idea. I think that the readers of the New Testament, especially those that understand that Jesus was preexistent, that he was the God of the Old Testament, are invited to get it. So I think this text, in a way, is kind of code speaking to the early Christians and to the Latter-day Saints who understand these things. And and think about this. If we read Psalm 110 through the lens of Doctrine and Covenants 84, this is also you. From a temple perspective, you are invited to sit at the right hand of God, and you are promised blessings of invulnerability. And by the way, it's not just to the men. It's to the men and the women because marriage is an order of the priesthood and the endowment is entering into priesthood orders. Psalm 110 applies to anyone who's making temple covenants. And so I think if we read Psalm 110 with the lens of the Doctrine and Covenants, it opens up all kinds of other things. Now, can you imagine the silence after he says that? stunned silence, as they don't know what to say, as they were unable to speak. It sure seems to me at that point, he turned his attention to those watching. He's done with the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians and all of those who are trying to destroy him and contend against him. They're not going to ask him any more questions. So I think he turns to all the people that would have been in the temple watching this exchange. And now we have chapter 23. It's a lengthy chapter in which I think he's looking at them and pointing to the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And so he says, they sit in Moses' seat. This is Matthew 23, verse 2. They sit in Moses' seat. They have the keys. And because of that... Observe what they tell you to do, but do not after their works, for they say and do not. Now, the whole rest of Matthew chapter 23 is a rebuke to the leaders, a rebuke to the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, I remind you, there's two things that the Savior just rises up and rebukes most quickly, and you're going to find both of them in this chapter. What causes the greatest reaction from Christ is, number one, hypocrisy. And he says, they say and do not. Avoid hypocrisy. And then his second rebuke is about those who are getting in the way of people trying to progress. So in verse 13 is an example. He says to the scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. Those are the two things you're going to find the Savior most quickly rebuking. Hypocrisy and getting in the way. So this whole chapter is a significant rebuke to the leaders. Verse 23, he makes it clear. You have omitted the weightier matters of the law, which are judgment and mercy and faith. 
these ought ye to have done and not leave the other undone. In chapter 23, Jesus publicly humiliates the leaders in Jerusalem, specifically the religious leaders. And because he publicly shames them, due to the honor culture that existed in Jesus's day, my take on what they're thinking is essentially this. Because he has publicly shamed them, they must publicly take away his honor. They must come at him in a way that's very public, and crucifixion would be one of those things. I believe that Matthew 23 is... The Nauvoo Exposit. Yes, that's what it is, yeah. Of Joseph's life. Yeah. It was the trigger that now leads them to thirst for his blood. This has to happen. These things have to be said so that they're in that position where they're going to do what they're going to do. And I think calling it that is, is a good label. It's unfortunate. I hear all people all the time say things like, be nice, Jesus was nice. And then my immediate thought is, have you read Matthew 23? Like he is coming at these guys. Now, I don't think this is the ideal speech condition. I don't think this is how we should talk to people that disagree with us. But in the context of the time, this being the last week of the Savior's life, I get why this is here, and I get why he speaks this way, because we're moving towards that time where, at least as John records it, where he says, mine hour has come. If we're going to get to that hour where he's to perform the atonement, we have to get those pieces in play, and that's really what Matthew 23 is doing, is it's pushing that along. Now, one sweet little episode that happens while all of this is happening is he's sitting over by the treasury. And they're watching, he with his disciples are watching people make donations. And all these rich people are making very large donations. And they seem to be drawing attention to the fact that they're making these donations. And while that's happening, a widow with two mites approaches the treasury and donates her two mites. Jesus then turns to his disciples who noticed that. And I love the fact that Jesus noticed it because she didn't draw attention to herself, but he saw it. He gathers his disciples and says, of a truth, I say unto you that this poor widow hath cast in more than they all. For all these have of their abundance cast unto the offerings of God. But she of her penury, of her lack, of her want, hath cast in all the living that she had. In the midst of all of this, it just stands to testify that Jesus notices the fall of a sparrow to the ground. He notices the hairs of your head. He notices this woman's donation, and he knew how great it was. I like the story of the widow's might, and also it's good to note that even though the widow pays her might, and it's as much as if a king had donated— At the end of the day, the gospel is also a kingdom. The church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a church, but it is also a kingdom. And because it is a kingdom, it will accumulate wealth because that's what the kingdom is to do, to spread the gospel and for all the things that the kingdom is going to be required to do when the Savior comes again. And so while we honor the widow and her might, we also acknowledge that the big picture is the kingdom. And whether you're a widow giving a mite or a king giving multiple talents. All of us stand before God, and when we compare our donation to what God is, we are all widows giving our mites. 
from there, we're going to go to John chapter 12. And it's just briefly mentioned here in John, but we want to mention this. Verse 20 reads, There were certain Greeks among them that came up to worship at the feast. The same came therefore to Philip, which was of Bethsaida of Galilee, and desired him, saying, Sir, we would see Jesus. Philip cometh and telleth Andrew. And again, Andrew and Philip tell Jesus. And Jesus answered them and said, The hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Big picture what we read here is that there are people from outside of Jerusalem that are coming to Jerusalem for the feast of the Passover. That's what it means in verse 20 where it says they came to worship at the feast. And the way I read verse 20 is that these are people that are of the Jewish religion and the Jewish faith, and they are traveling a long distance to Jerusalem. So the fact that they're asking about Jesus I think John is trying to tell us something. And one of the things he's trying to tell us is that Jesus is the God over the whole world. Over and over again, we read this idea that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Most of the time, when you read John, the word for world is cosmos or created order. And so I think John's kind of plugging these verses in here to say, Jesus is more than just the God of the Jews but he is the God of the cosmos. And how do we know this? Even people that are outsiders, people from far away that are coming to the feast, they're hearing about Jesus. And we'll see this throughout the gospel narrative as we read other parts in John. John will drop these breadcrumbs that talk about Jesus being the God of the cosmos. And so we'll look at those as we proceed. So now Jesus is going to speak on the Son of Man and his Father, and the Father's actually going to speak Now, this is a theme that's going to be woven throughout the rest of John, and it's this theme of glory. One of the messages in John is that Jesus glorifies the Father, and because he does, it adds glory to the Father because Jesus is good and he is righteous, but because he's adding glory to the Father, it's reciprocated, and the Father adds glory to Jesus. And then later, when we talk about the intercessory prayer, Jesus is going to extend that circle of light or glory to those that follow him. And he's going to say, Father, glorify those that follow me as I glorify you and you glorify me. And so as we, as disciples that follow Jesus, as we try to do what's right, Jesus therefore extends his glory to us. In verse 26, we read, if any man serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there shall also my servant be. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. That's hinting towards that future glory. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Then came a voice from heaven and said, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. And the people that stood by and heard it said that it thundered, and others said an angel spake unto him. So that's a beautiful passage, and it's not really explained, but my belief is that a lot of these verses will be explained as we continue to read John. As we read, especially John 17, these verses, in my mind, make more sense that it's this reciprocal nature of glory and that Jesus is extending the circle of light to you. Now, what a day that's been in the temple. He's taught some very powerful truths. He's rebuked their hypocrisy. He's answered every one of their questions. 
Now, as he walks out, the last thing he says to them at the very end of Matthew chapter 23, now this is where Matthew has him lamenting, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, that killest the prophets. How often would I have gathered you as a chicken, as a hen gathereth her chicks. This is where Matthew has that verse. And then he says, the last thing he says to them in the temple as he teaches, verse 39, I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now, let me point out that this came up earlier in the book of Luke, but clearly those two ideas are connected, that Jesus is walking away from the temple saying, the next time you see me, I will be coming in the clouds of glory. Look at Luke's version. Verse 34 of Luke 13, way earlier in his life, this is where Luke has him lamenting, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killeth the prophets, how often would I have gathered you as a hen gathereth her chicks? See, same verse. But the very next verse after that is, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. That's way too much like Matthew 23 to not make that connection. So it sure seems to me that the last thing that Jesus said as a teacher in the temple, now they'll come back, but totally different setting. The last thing he says to them as a teacher in the temple is the next time you see me, I will be coming in the clouds of glory. And the world will shout out and say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Now remember that that's on their mind. Now turn to Matthew 24. As they're going home from that day teaching in the temple, as they pass the great stones of the temple, Jesus says in verse 2, See ye not all these things? I think he's pointing to the temple, the stones. Verily I say unto you, there shall not be left here one stone upon another that shall not be thrown down. So the last thing the disciples heard him say was, number one, you're going to see me again when I'm coming in the clouds of glory. And then number two, this temple is going to be destroyed. The stones of the temple are going to be thrown down. Now, they're going to follow Jesus out to the Mount of Olives, and they're going to have a private little moment. This is no longer the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is him and his believing disciples who are now going to pick that up and ask those two questions. Can you tell us about the destruction of the temple? And can you tell us about the second coming? How many people over the years have asked Jesus about the second coming, and normally he doesn't answer? He won't answer in Acts chapter 1 when they say, is this the time? Is this the moment? He doesn't answer that. He didn't answer when Joseph Smith asked him, but this time he answers. What we're going to cover in our next podcast is Tuesday evening sermon. We'll spend an entire podcast addressing those two topics the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, and the second coming. 
And boy, do our ears need to perk up because Jesus is going to tell them a whole lot about our day. What were his concerns? So do you see this whole day continuing, a whole day of teaching, first against the Pharisees, and now he ends it with his disciples asking some very important questions that we need to know the answers. And with that, we thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.